Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word. John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. I was raised in South Arkansas. One fact about South Arkansas that many people don't know is that it is actually uh, the location of a very large oil boom of the early 1900s and sits on top of a significantly large oil reserve. Oil dominates the economy and has since the early 1900s in that part of the world. And the small community outside of the main town in South Arkansas that I lived called Norflet, there is this site of what we call the crater. I just always knew of it as the crater. But I want to tell you a little story about how the crater uh, was made. It was the cause or the result of a drilling accident. On May the 14th in 1922, they were drilling for oil on the J.T. Murphy lease and they drilled over 2,000 feet when they finally hit what they were looking for. And as they began to lay the pipe to pull it up, the pressure from the natural gas that was coming up with the oil became so significant that not only the inner pipe where the oil was, but the outer casing of that pipe could not contain the pressure from it. And as the pressure continued to build and the gas leaked out, it ultimately created an explosion. An explosion to such the extent that it threw a black cloud of smoke and flame hundreds of feet into the air in a massive mushroom cloud and to hear my grandfather tell it it burned for over three weeks could be seen from as far away as 20 miles away it was a massive explosion that dominates even the history today it left a crater that you can still go to today that, that they tell us, uh, depending on what uh, site you read about it on, is somewhere between 450 and 600 feet in diameter. And they claim it to be 100 feet deep. However, 
you get the privilege of having an insider's understanding of the crater. Local folklore, which we all know is more accurate, says it's bottomless. Pretty sure my granddaddy told me that to keep me away from it. That just made me want to go all the more, right? You know, for me, the crater is just a part of the history of that. But when I would listen to my great-grandfather and my grandfather tell me about the day it exploded, my grandfather was a young boy, my great-grandfather was a businessman there in the small community. They said within three weeks, the community went from about 1,000 people to over 30,000 people. Vagrants, people jumping off the train, living in tents just everywhere looking for the boom. And he said a very short time later, just a couple of months later, the town depleted of people as quickly as it rose. You know, for me, that's just history, but for them, it was real. They could still see the cloud of smoke. They could still feel the sound of the boom when it exploded. They could still smell the burning oil for weeks that was left in the air. And it caused me to think this morning, in this passage, it caused me to ask, what kind of pressure had to be present to cause such an explosion that left to this day what's on the state historical site marker? Such an explosion to leave such a crater. What John does for us in John chapter 12 is he records a moment of explosive worship That is far, far greater. Mary's worship came out of a deep, genuine, life-defining, not containable, but explosive act of worship. And she submits all to the only one who is worthy of all of her adoration and all of her affection in glorious gratitude. Friends, there was no smoke, mirror, or flame in this passage, but there was an aroma, we are told, that fills the house. And it was that aroma that imprinted the moment on all who were nearby. And as I begin this morning, I ask of you, Don't you want a heart full of that kind of glory that cannot be contained, but that overflows in such a way that leaves an imprint, an aroma of glory on all who are near you? A real Christ follower, friends, Worships Jesus with their whole life out of the overflow of his eternal life. What John does is he provides a beautiful image of worship in Mary's expression. He tells us that Jesus comes to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's the week before Passover. Two sisters and a brother. And they're going to share a meal to celebrate. What are they celebrating? Well, if you remember in chapter 11, Lazarus was dead. And he was just raised from the dead by Jesus. I don't know about you. I think that's worthy of a meal. Invite a few friends over. Let's have a party, right? And what do we see? We see them kind of in their typical lanes. Martha is serving. She's setting the table, making sure everything's perfect for the hospitality. Lazarus is reclining. Give him a break. He was dead a few days ago. You know, he's got to get his strength back. And Mary, 
Mary's overflowing in worship. She takes this very expensive oil and she anoints the feet of Jesus. And what we see is not that she carefully poured it out, but rather almost in a sloppy manner, she just throws it all on his feet. And then she takes her hair and she begins to make sure that there's no part of his body or skin on his feet that's not covered completely in the ointment. What great care, what great passion we see in her desire. It's dominated the attention and the amazement of all who are watching. Surely at first it was a little awkward and then the moment began to take place. And and even as John says, the aroma begins to captivate those who are sitting there. And it, it begins to overwhelm what's taking place. And then they begin to realize what it is that Mary's doing. And she's anointing him. And they all sense it in their own heart. That yes, in fact, Jesus is worthy of this kind of anointing, of this kind of adoration. And so silently, though, they are participating with her. And what happens is John freezes the scene when he says the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Even we as readers are immediately drawn into this sense of glorious aroma that suddenly has become so potent that it's overwhelmed the moment, yea, even the whole story to this day. To sense that kind of an aroma. The glorious display of worship seized them with an aroma that imprinted upon them and their memory the glory of the one who was anointed. Mary overflows in worship from adoration for Jesus. Friends, the aroma of glory cannot be contained. Exploding and overwhelming worship from the heart that is deeply satisfied in Jesus. And with the abruptness of verse 3, we move immediately to verse 4. And what does he say? Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, challenges Mary's extravagance. You see, his idea seems so good and, and, and so right. But John shows us that he was really hiding his true motive. Jesus, Judas's expression shows what it was that was dominating his mind and his heart in the moment. Friends, I present to you that authentic worship stirs all who are nearby by either clarifying exactly what it is that fills our heart and mind and for some inviting them to join in while for others simply being put off by it and being able to dismiss or negate it. And what does Jesus say? Well, he guards Mary's expression of worship from those who would condemn her, not only from Judas, but if there were any others who were thinking or calculating in their own heart and mind what Judas was articulating for them. Jesus' response reveals for us what is also dominating his heart and his mind. For you see, the act of anointing was typically an act of celebration. And while Mary surely had some of that in her heart, for Jesus had just brought her brother out of the grave from death, Jesus demonstrates what was dominating his heart and mind too because he applies the anointing not to the celebration but rather to his death, to his burial, to the work that he's focused on that the Father has sent him for. And he acknowledges that in some sense, in some manner, though she may not have fully understood it, Mary recognized that Jesus, who he was and why he had come, 
was from God. And the work that he was here to do was God's work to be done on the earth. Worship, friends, is the only right response to Jesus. And might I say to us, there is never any cause that is more worthy than exalting Jesus in worship. A real Christ follower worships Jesus with their whole life out of the overflow of the eternal life that he has given to us. And friends, might I tell us today as a word of encouragement, this is not a rare occurrence. This is not for us to look at Mary and go, man, if I could just be like Mary, how great it would be. Or how great Mary was because because God gave her a heart for worship that, that was special to her. You see, what Mary does is she demonstrates the glory that God wants to fill every Christ follower's heart with in Jesus. Glory is that which cannot be contained. And so when your heart is filled with glory, you you worship. And what I want us to look at today is that that the greatest threat to true worship is not whether or not you will worship, but rather whether you will express false forms of worship. You see, false forms of worship allow us to substitute a lesser glory from objects of lesser worth and value. But friends, if you want a heart that is full of a glory that produces overflowing worship in your life, you must drill deeply into the one that produces soul-satisfying, life-fulfilling glory. And I want to help you this morning by identifying three forms of false worship from this passage Each form subverting our true worship and substituting it with a lesser glory that will only condemn and destroy us. The first form of false worship we're going to see in this passage is actually that which is closest to the truest expression of worship. It's what I'm titling legalism. Legalism. You may not think first of Judas when you hear the word legalism. Usually we default to Pharisees when we think about legalism, do we not? Organized religion, structure, ruralism. But I'm talking about the way that legalism takes our heart and substitutes true glory with lesser glory. And I would submit to you that Judas, in his expression here, is the truest form of what legalism looks like in our life. It shows what it looks like to to walk next to Jesus every day. Judas, John says, who was one of Jesus' disciples. He shows us what it looks like to walk next to Jesus every day, to, to be so familiar with him, yet to know really nothing truly of him. He demonstrates for us what it is to live with a claim on your life, but for your life to be a betrayal of that very claim that it makes. Friends, legalism masquerades as true Christianity in order to steal from it. But it knows nothing of its true source, nor its true Glory. This is the most common form of false worship that gets labeled Christianity. And I might add, because of that, it's the most deceptive as well. I might even say it's Judas' own denomination of religion. 
a betrayal of true biblical Christianity, but that exists within biblical Christianity, within its own ranks, and it masquerades as such to try and steal from it without ever actually embracing it. There are many varied forms, but all are legalistic in its expression. Some are enslaved to rules. That's what we typically think of legalism as enslavement to rules, but I'll offer you another end of the same spectrum today. Some are enslaved by their liberties. Here's what I mean. In the first form, one rule rules all the other rules. And that rule, because you like to talk about rules, is the one you're typically best at, right? Well, I've got this one mastered. That must be the most important. And this is what we typically think of as the truest form of legalism. But the second form, being enslaved by liberties, is also ruled by only one rule. And that rule is one that's applied in order to negate or deny anything that might threaten what is its most desired liberty. Well, that couldn't be. God would want me to be happy. This is where I find my greatest happiness. I'll indulge here. You see, both of these are applied legalisms. In the first, law is the highest glory. In the second, liberty is guarded as the highest glory. And legalism, friends, stays really close to true worship, but it never enters in because it remains satisfied by selfish pilfering to satisfy personal demands and desires instead of denying self in order to believe, to worship, and to confess Christ as Lord. Notice this about Judas, since he's our poster child for legalism here. He mentions the total calculated value. I promise you when Mary lifted that urn of oil he knew immediately the value of it why because that's the way his brain worked and the problem was not that he was good with numbers the problem was those numbers had his heart and and we're not talking about just a small uh, a small half ounce or so probably about 11 or so ounces is what mary had so so something about two-thirds of my morning cup of coffee It was fairly significant, especially as a fragrance. Typically, we don't put 11 ounces of perfume on in the morning. You can imagine how overwhelming that could be. All Judas could think about, though, was the detail that never caused Mary any moment's concern or hesitation. Mary had no hesitation because to her, it didn't matter how much it was worth. Nothing was more worthy than Jesus She knew who it was who was her greatest love and she was anointing him with the most precious valuable of her life. And before it is that we dismiss this as, well, it's just a bottle of oil, think about this. The value that Judas grants to that bottle of oil was equal to an average laborer's annual wage. Ask yourself this, when's the last time you gave a full year's salary to anything? other than yourself. That's what Mary does here. That's significant, friends. Significant. She did it, and she never flinched, because the one to whom she gave it was of far greater worth than what she was giving. Some 
have dared to argue that Jesus was likely a mole of the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees sent him in, you know, to, to, to kind of this whole CIA counterintelligence thing happening with Jesus. I don't think the Pharisees were that smart. I think they were too arrogant to be worried about Jesus until much later in his ministry. I don't think Jesus called disciples to try and win them. I think he put the call there because he saw the work of God in their heart and he invited them to come in. Because that's the way discipleship works, friends. We don't give people a label and then try to help them live up to it. Rather, we preach the good news that Christ is our hope and those who respond, we invest and pour our lives into. You see, I think Judah started on the right path. I think he became a disciple because there was an affection, there was an attention in his heart that looked at Jesus and knew the hope of God and the Messiah and believed that very likely he was the Christ who would come. But through time, as the money came in and as his attentions were set on those things, he had an inclination of his skills and his training towards the counting of the funds. And he had this gift that just naturally put him in a place where the 12 disciples said, you know, he's good at that. Let's let him take care of it. And so he just did what was naturally he was good at and and gifted at. But in time, what he was good at began to take hold of his affections more deeply than just the attention of his work. And it became the consuming desire of his life. And when he woke up, he realized he was holding a bag of 30 pieces of silver that had condemned him. Because he had not guarded his heart. Rather, he had let his giftings and his strengths rule him to define his heart. You see, Judas' life, friends, is not the greatest display of betrayal. It's not something for us to take comfort in and go, well, at least I'm not Judas. At least I didn't walk with Jesus on the earth and betray him to his face. No, you see, that's not the greatest betrayal of life. The greatest betrayal is the deception of his life by a lesser glory that comes through a false worship. That's the ultimate betrayal, and that's the betrayal you and I and each one of us daily must guard our hearts against, specifically those things that are closest to us, that we are most inclined to, and surely that we're most comfortable or most common with. Psalm 423 reminds us, guard vigilantly your heart and your mind, Christian, for your life flows out of it. Real Christ followers must guard their heart against legalism because it destroys us by fortifying our hope and our faith in something other than believing in Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Is there anything that consumes your heart or mind that justifies to you in giving Jesus less glory in any form, in any manner or expression. But it says to you, it's okay. You don't have to go so far. You don't have to be so radical. You don't have to be so sold out. You're okay. Is there anything justifying that in your own heart and life today? If there is, I'm telling you, legalism is deepening its roots in you. And I want to encourage you today to root it out and to guard your heart against that which will do what we see, what it did to Judas. The second form of false worship is what I would call the most comfortable form to us. It's traditionalism. 
In verse 9, it tells us, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. After all, he was kind of the center ring circle of attention, right? He was dead, now he's not. Whom he had raised from the dead, John tells us. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They were like, you know, the longer we let this get out of hand, the more people we're going to have to take out to squash it. And now Lazarus is at the top of the hit list, just like Jesus is. This is traditionalism. We see it in verses 10 and 11. We see it also in verse 19 where the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. In other words, everything that we love is leaving us because of him. What are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about this? John shows us what the reaction of the Pharisees to the swelling crowds walking away from them, walking to Jesus is all about. And here's what is so ironic with the Pharisees. Number one, they failed to see Jesus for who he was. They should have known that because they were experts in the scriptures. They failed to see Jesus for who he claimed to be. They failed to see Jesus for who his works proved him to be. And they failed to see Jesus for who their scriptures said would come. The Pharisees held such a disdain for Jesus, they thought they would kill Lazarus too. You see, only one factor truly blinded them to Jesus, and it is the factor that we must guard our own hearts against. They loved what they had more than what God had promised. They loved what they had more than what God had promised. Again, in traditionalism, there's two real threats that we must guard against, two extremes that will arise The first extreme I would call uh, uh, the ride on the crazy train. Let me just put it like this. I'll use kind of a congregational or even a, a trajectory of Christian history, but you can apply it personally as well. The crazy train is what I'd call a reactionary measure to the past and the things you didn't like, and you change them just for the sake of change. And, And what happens is this usually runs on the rails of creativity. In the last 30, maybe 40 years, In my own life experience, I've seen more crazy train running on the rails of creativity than you could imagine. And most of them had formal labels in church movement. And many of their leaders, if not the vast majority of them, are no longer even in ministry. Because you know what? They rode that train right out of town. Right out of the church. It was not a ride that could sustain them. And when it came from within the church and they got bored with Jesus, they got bored with the things of the Lord in the community, they had to do something to whip it up one more time. And that's when they got on the rails of creativity and began to ride the crazy train. It's often labeled as progressivism. But all they're really doing is fortifying what has been in a different way. The other extreme that arises, the other end of the spectrum, which is often more obvious, and usually what we think of more with traditionalism, is when we fortify what is or was in such a manner that what God is doing cannot take hold of people's lives. Now this is more of a typical understanding of traditionalism. And here's what happens, friend. Traditionalism claims God's blessing in some lesser glory, some manner of expression, or some practice so that it can hold to that instead of to the one who is the source of glory. You see, friends, tradition that enriches worship is not the problem. 
Tradition is not our problem. Traditionalism arises when a particular tradition or practice becomes the object of our affection and attention. In other words, instead of using that in order to grow closer, to follow the Lord more faithfully, we grab hold of it and say, this is the source of glory, this practice or this pattern that we held. And you see, sometimes we hold on to it, not because we know it's better, but because it's just simply more comfortable to us. It's more accommodating. It fits better. And sometimes just simply because it's easier for us to manage and to control. That's traditionalism. It's really hard to imagine that a church like LifePoint, I mean, we're only 13 and a half or so years old, not even a half fully yet. 13 and a quarter, 13 and a, I don't know. It's hard to imagine that we could in any way be tempted by traditionalism, but we can and we are, as each of us are in our own lives. You see, every measure of counted success as a church, individually, hey, I did pretty well in my spiritual life there, I'm doing okay, every measure of counted success holds the strong allure towards traditionalism. And as with the first false form of worship, so I pose to us here, real Christ followers must guard their heart against traditionalism because it builds our hope on boasted success that cannot source and will not sustain our life moving forward. Every day of walking with Jesus, friends, should be received as our daily bread. Go back to the Lord's Prayer. To bring gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord that leads us to praise for who He is and understanding more deeply what He's done in our life. But when we lay our head to bed and rest at night, we should not try to enshrine that day in such a way that when our feet hit the ground in the morning, we cannot receive the new mercies that He has for us, no matter how painful or difficult they may be in their initial presence. Is there anything that you love about you, about your life, about your family, about your church, that you would say, I don't ever want this to change? Beware, friends, beware, lest traditionalism take hold in your heart and lead you away from what God is wanting to do in you. The third form of false worship is what I'll call the most prevalent, and I've labeled it popularism. Look at verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches, it says, of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Zechariah 9, 9. You see, when Jesus enters on a donkey, these large crowds swell to meet him with palm branches and crying out in praise. They welcomed him as royalty, like a king, but few really understood what that meant. What John tells us is that Jesus' entry was fulfilling the prophecy 
that had been said about him. You see, everyone seemed to worship in this moment. I mean, everybody had a palm branch. Everybody was saying the same thing, almost perfectly chanting it together. But Jesus knew what it was that we will later see. Many knew nothing of true worship in that moment. Hear me, friends. Here is the great danger of the false form of worship, of popularism. The crowds were right, but they were not true. They were right, but they were not true. Jesus was the king. He was worthy of all honor and glory, but that's not why many were praising him. They worshiped because it's what everyone else was doing. They worshiped because it just flat out looked odd and abnormal not to be waving palm branches and saying the same thing everybody else was shouting at the same moment. You see, we see here what some call a new phenomenon known as popularism. We know, though, by God's word, popularism is, in fact, nothing new. Now, when I say popularism, do not confuse it with what is commonly called populism, this this political ideology or philosophy. Populism is a, a political philosophy that seeks to disrupt social order by proposing that the rights and powers of ordinary people are exploited by the political or privileged elite, rather, and supports their struggle to overcome this. Granted, there's plenty of populism in the world today, without a doubt, But what is popularism, even in our day? Popularism is any political doctrine or philosophy that is chosen to appeal to the majority. And what I'm doing is I'm applying it to the movement of contemporary Christianity. Popularism claims right worship amidst the latest idea, the latest practice, the latest fad, the latest trend. And it immortalizes God in shallow, immature spirituality. And so some might say, well, it's just always been. But I found this article this week from the New York Times, June 23rd of 2012, where Thomas Friedman writes, and here's what he says. Now, he's speaking of a political reality, and I'm applying this to our spiritual reality, okay? So stay with me here. But he's lamenting the absence of true leadership in the world among political leaders in 2012 and the rampant willingness of people to follow this vain triviality. Here's what he says. When you have technologies that promote quick, short-term responses and judgments, and when you have a generation that has grown used to short-term gratification, but you have problems whose solutions require long, hard journeys. You have a real mismatch and leadership challenge. Virtually all leaders today have to ask their people to share burdens, not just benefits, and to both study harder and work smarter just to keep up. That requires extraordinary leadership that has to start with telling people the truth. Friends, popularism makes it easy for anyone to join because it's what everyone is doing. As a matter of fact, I might offer, it looks abnormal not to be doing it and doing it in the way and to the extent that everyone else is doing it. But it only allows for that which fits within its own ranks and serves its own purpose. It doesn't really value people as it at first appears because it's got such a swell. Rather, it only values the popularity of the movement. We are so familiar with this. I would present to you we're driven by it, we're consumed by it, yea, even dominated by it at every turn in our life. Social media is the greatest demonstration of this today. 
It was designed to sweep the participant along, but it puts us right into the current of popularism. You see this because when it first came out, it was a timeline. What are you doing? Show the world. Tell the world what's on your mind. You don't have a timeline anymore. Now you have a news feed. Let me tell you what you need to think. Here's what you need to hold highly. Here's what you need to think lowly of. Every social media outlet is driven by an algorithm that takes your digital identification, your digital imprint, not not your thumbprint or your retina scan or anything like that, but the patterns and practices of what you value online, and it manages that data and cultivates it in such a way that it can put a reality in front of you. Listen, I'm not describing something that's new to us. We're in a massive uh, 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 national debate about this right now. But what I'm saying to us is the current of the world is not in some way uh, 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 able to penetrate into your heart and life into the way that you manage your relationship with the Lord. When we went from news at 5, 6, and 10 to 24-7, all of a sudden you're like, well, I can find out about whatever's going on at any time. But then they realize nobody wants to listen 24-7. So now we have to tell it different ways. And we've got to figure out how we can present it so that it'll just keep emerging. And so now every day begins, bam, a new crisis. Here's the breaking news. And it's often fake as we have learned. It's characterized by hyped outrage. It's characterized by extreme philosophical bent. And it's dismissed in comedic relief. It's almost impossible to communicate factual, objective information in our world anymore. And the problem is, as Christians, we so often don't delineate between what the world's going on and what God's got going on and we don't know how to delineate with factual objective truth anymore such that we're not even sure there is objective absolute truth anymore. And when we come to that point, our heart is being ruled by a popularism that is carrying us along because it's just more prevalent and convenient. Ironically, the author's States in this article at the end, the only answer is really just to tell people the truth. Yes. What an original idea. What an original idea. As a matter of fact, God didn't only tell us the truth. He tells us He is the truth. And there will be no fake news that will rule the glory of His light that shines in truth. There will be no deception, no chaos, no confusion that will overrule the discernment and the clarity of who He is when He speaks. My question to you today, friends, is not am I doing the right thing, but is your worship true? Is it true? Is it grounded in the one who is truth? Who alone is worthy? You see, even the disciples were confused at times. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand. (laughs) That phrase pretty much defines the disciples until after the resurrection. The disciples did not understand. Listen, if those who walked with Jesus for over three years did not understand, there's at least some room in here for us to have some lack of understanding at times, right? But here's what we see, verse 16. They didn't understand it first, but their lack of understanding 
wasn't a legitimate reason to dismiss their need to understand. Rather, it says, when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him. There's the word for us right there. And had been done to him. What gets done aligns with what's been said so that the one who lives in us by the Holy Spirit, who is the illuminator of all truth, brings to light what is clear from God. Friends, let me give you these three strands that simply provide a spiritual filter to discern because verse 17 goes on to say, Let me find it just a minute. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. I present to you this, that your filter for discernment that produces true worship in you will be woven by these three strands. The word of God, illuminated by the presence of God and the Holy Spirit in your life, and clarified through your faithful testimony of what's taking place. You know why? Because sometimes we just don't know how we believe or what we believe until we hear ourselves say it. And then we go, wait, that's not right. What I should have said was, or go, yeah, I do believe that. It weaves a filter in our conscience to know Jesus and to walk in the light of his word. By the power of Holy Spirit. Friends, a real Christ follower worships Jesus with their whole life out of the overflow of his eternal life. Guarding your heart against false worship means being vigilant against that which is common, that which is most comfortable, and that which is most prevalent. It's never about the crowd's cries. It's never about the enemy's devices, but only whether you're worshiping Jesus with your whole life. Whatever flows out of you reveals what's being tapped in you. The worship you express reveals the glory you adore. You can't cling to shallow practices and expect that it will ever produce true glory in you. Set your heart on this today that you will drill deeply into Christ Jesus and let the aroma of His glory fill your life so that as it overflows, those who encounter the fragrance of glory might be moved by the glorious one. Let's pray.